Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. here. The holidays are over and it is possible to simply reflect and reduce stress a bit. And what better way to reduce a little stress than to step outside under a clear star-filled sky and just look around. As January melds into February, darkness continues to come on later and later. We are more than a month past the first day of winter, generally the date with the shortest amount of daylight. The sun is rising a bit earlier and setting a bit later, shortening the night. But it is still winter, so throwing on my coat, I start outside early in the evening. Early in the evening, before it gets too dark, is sometimes best. Fewer stars to deal with to make it easier to spot things. One object I like to look for each night that I go out is the Big Dipper. That pattern of stars stands out quite easily and can also be used to find directions as darkness falls. The dipper is found low in the northeast at this time of the year, so scanning the horizon might show it as if it is sitting on its handle on the horizon. The front two stars of the dipper are called the pointer stars, as a line starting with the one marking the bottom of the front of the dipper's bowl to the one marking the lip of the bowl can be drawn to the north star. The north star is not the brightest star in the sky, but it does remain fixed throughout the year. It is at the same height above the horizon from one's location and in the same direction. With that knowledge, I know that when I step out on my front porch, the direction I am looking is generally north. If I look past the North Star a bit higher to the northwest, I notice the W-shaped pattern of Cassiopeia the Queen. Last fall, she was found in the northeast and the Big Dipper low in the northwest. Now these two patterns have generally switched places in the sky over these past months. The stars that make up Cassiopeia are bright as those that make up the Big Dipper, so the pattern stands out well in the early darkening skies. As I slowly turn to the west, my hope is to find planets. When looking for planets, I generally look west, then east, slowly sweeping my gaze along the southern sky between these two points. At present, A reddish point of light is visible in the southwest. That would be Mars. Mars does not stand out as well as it did earlier this year. Earlier we were close to Mars as we overtook it in our faster orbit. Now we are well ahead and leaving it behind. Mars is a smaller planet than Earth, so when we place distance between us and it, it dims quickly. Still high up in the southwestern sky as it is, it is the brightest star-like object found there making it easy to spot with my eyes. Continuing to turn left, the southeastern sky now lies ahead, and a bright pattern of stars is visible. Dominating the southeastern sky as darkness falls is the constellation of Orion. 
At this time of the year, a hunting scene presents itself, though no such hunting scene is described in ancient tales. Most people find Orion's belt of three stars first, a line of bright stars marking his waist. Just below the belt is another line of stars, marking a sword attached to his belt. The middle star of these three appears a little hazier than the other two. This is the Orion Nebula, a vast gas cloud, a nursery of new stars. The gas is contracting into individual blobs, and, as the cores of these blobs get denser and hotter, nuclear fusion can begin, and a star is born. These newly born stars, some of which are quite hot, can heat the surrounding gas to cause further collapse. But their light can also excite the gas, just as the gases of a neon tube are excited by electricity, and this causes the gas of the nebula to glow. The Orion Nebula is an easy target even for a small telescope, and it is not overly difficult with a good pair of binoculars, say a pair of 10x50s. The rest of Orion consists of a pair of bright stars north of the belt, marking his shoulders, and an equally bright pair of stars south of the belt, marking his knees. As constellations go, Orion is one of those few that can be imagined looking like what it is supposed to be in the sky. Orion is only the beginning of this hunting scene. Orion has two hunting dogs helping him, both near their master. Following a line along the belt stars east of Orion leads to the bright star Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky, far outshining, for example, the North Star. A quick scan from Sirius to Polaris, the North Star, can prove this point and put this little piece of misinformation to rest. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the Big Dog. In the early evening sky, the Big Dog is almost standing on its hind legs. Its forelegs extend to the right of Sirius to a relatively bright star. Its back is marked by a line heading toward the horizon to another relatively bright star. And to the right of this second star are the back legs. The second dog is a puppy, and like most puppies has a short attention span. While Canis Major has its eyes on Orion, ready to help, Canis Minor, the little dog, is facing away. A line drawn along the shoulder stars of Orion, starting with the dimmer Bellatrex to the brighter and redder Betelgeuse, reaches a bright star known as Procyon. Procyon marks the head of the pup, and a star slightly higher up off the horizon and a bit dimmer marks the back end of the pup. Clearly this little dog is looking away from Orion possibly romping in the field instead. Orion's quarry may be out in front of him, found by using his belt stars again. This time the line goes through the belt stars west of Orion, leading to Aldebaran. Aldebaran marks the fiery eye of Taurus the bull. The rest of Taurus is a V-shaped group of stars near Aldebaran. Extending the arms of the V to two fairly bright stars reaches the tips of the horns of Taurus. Only the front half of the bull is found in the sky, with its neck and shoulders marked by a tight grouping of stars known as the Pleiades, just west of the V, marking his face. A planet, bright stars, constellations, and with help, possibly a nebula to see. Lots to look at to reduce the day's stress on a chilly winter evening.
the most interesting way that animals and plants interact with one another is during pollination. There's animals like bees and butterflies and hummingbirds that visit one flower to collect nectar or maybe they're collecting pollen or both. And then they fly to another flower to collect more and inadvertently end up carrying pollen from that first flower to the next flower. Now many plants actually depend on this animal assisted pollination in order to be able to make seeds for the next generation. And it certainly helps ensure more genetic diversity when the male parent, of course that's what the pollen represents, is from a different plant than the female parent, which is the one that produces the egg. Well, believe it or not, there are other types of organisms involved in pollination. Microorganisms, specifically yeast and bacteria. It turns out that the nectar that plants produce in their flowers is more than just sugar water. It also contains these single-celled fungi called yeast, and it also contains bacteria. Biologists have actually known this for 100 years. The article that I want to explore today is a literature review. It's sort of an analysis of the current understandings of this situation rather than the result of actual laboratory experimentation. The two authors are at Stanford University in California and they published their review article in the journal called Yeast in February of 2018. Now there's four important characteristics of plant nectar. First of all, the nectar that is produced by plant flowers are totally sterile. Any microbes that end up growing there are introduced to the flower by wind or insect pollinators. Secondly, apparently not very many species of bacteria or fungi can actually live in the nectar of any one flower at any one time. They call this low species richness. And what's interesting is that bacteria and yeast seem to be pretty exclusive of each other. In other words, if a plant's nectar is dominated by certain bacterial species, you won't find yeast. And then if you have yeast in the nectar, you won't find bacteria. Third, the nectar ecosystem of a flower is relatively easy to study. It's relatively easy to study because it's so accessible and contained in that flower structure. Fourth, these microbes can have very big effects on the nectar that they're living in. For instance, the microbes can modify the natural secondary metabolites that the plant makes. They can produce special chemicals that attract pollinators. They can draw nitrogen into the nectar. They can even increase the temperature of the nectar. And apparently these microbes can attract some pollinators to the flower while other microbes could repel pollinators from that flower. These authors basically end up arguing that ecologists should study plant nectar and the bacteria and fungi that live in that nectar to learn how ecosystems work. It's like a miniature ecosystem. The idea is that they could test major ecological theories using this nectar system. The authors conclude their article by saying, quote, in a field like ecology, particularly community ecology, which is characterized by a high degree of contingency, developing overarching principles may seem impossible. We believe that nectar yeast as a study system can help ecologists overcome this challenge in advanced ecological theory. We suggest that ecologists can similarly make use of natural microcosms like nectar yeast to achieve more rapid progress in uncovering fundamental principles than otherwise possible.
oh, I think that's what I want to be in my next life, a nectar ecologist, an ecologist who studies the birds and bees, the flowers and the trees, the bacteria and the yeast. Currently listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. to another episode of a segment we call How'd We Ever Get That? The goal of How'd We Ever Get That? is to demonstrate how scientists, mathematicians, engineers, people like that, how they've influenced our everyday lives. You might not think that science has much to do with you, but you would be wrong. Science affects us all every single day of our lives. Today's example of How'd We Ever Get That? is... Fecal transplantation. Yeah, you heard that right. Fecal transplantation. The idea of taking fecal matter from one person and giving it to another person to cure disease. I know it sounds pretty gross and far-fetched, but it does work in some situations. Did you know that rabbits consume their own feces as a normal part of their diet? This allows them to digest the nutrients more efficiently, sort of like cows that are chewing cud and sometimes the nutrient content of the food has actually been improved by the action of microorganisms. If you've ever raised guinea pigs, you might have noticed that they're eating their own droppings too. And of course, many a dog owner has observed their precious pet consuming its own excretions, or even worse, the excretions of another dog. Now, there's lots of reasons why a dog would eat feces. It could be because of anxiety, for instance. Submissive dogs will often eat the excretions of the dominant dog in the pack. It could also be instinct. For instance, females will eat the defecations of their young pups as a way of hiding the smells. That might keep predators away. But another reason for animals eating stool is to get the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, or the digestive enzymes, or even the digestive microbes that are in the feces. This indicates that maybe there is some medicinal value to feces. There's actually a slew of animals, wild and domesticated, that have been observed to consume feces. And did you know that humans have been doing this for centuries too? The first records of fecal transplantation date back to the 4th century in China, where yellow soup was applied in cases of severe food poisoning and diarrhea. It was also sometimes called golden syrup. 
by the 1500s, the Chinese had developed a variety of feces-derived products for gastrointestinal complaints, as well as for problems like fever and pain. And then in other parts of the world, there were the Bedouin people in the Middle East. They were observed to have consumed the stools of their camels as a remedy for bacterial dysentery. There was a physician in Germany in the late 1600s who was practicing what he called healing mud pharmacy using feces. When Nazi soldiers in North Africa in the early 1940s, during World War II, when they were having big problems with dysentery, German scientists, having observed the veterans who were consuming camel dung as a way of treating intestinal diseases, they set about isolating a bacteria from camel dung that apparently was a cure for dysentery. The bacteria they isolated is now called Bacillus subtilis, and it actually does help with dysentery. And then parallel to all this, there was Alexander Fleming, who famously discovered penicillin back in 1928. It took a decade before there was widespread use of penicillin antibiotics to treat infectious diseases after his discovery, but it was found that penicillin was incredibly effective at killing bacteria. Now there are about a hundred different antibiotics available to us, the vast majority of which were discovered between 1940 and 1962. Because of antibiotics, so many of the infectious diseases that killed our ancestors can now be kept at bay. Now, there are a couple of downsides to the widespread use of antibiotics, though. One of the disadvantages of antibiotics is that these chemicals harm all of the bacteria living in our body, not just the bad ones, but the good bacteria, too. These beneficial bacterial species are doing things like helping us digest our food, defending us from pathogenic bacteria and strengthening our own defense mechanisms. Now back in the late 1950s there was a bacteriologist by the name of Stanley Falco and Stanley Falco was trying to overcome the negative effect of antibiotic use by collecting feces of surgical patients before they started using antibiotics. He'd convert their stool into a pill and then he'd give the patients this pill that they would swallow every day after surgery. And the idea was that they could rebuild their natural bacterial populations. He performed some experiments with this approach, and he was getting positive results. Dr. Falco was working at a hospital at the time, and when the hospital administrators heard about this experiment, they fired poor Dr. Falco. Even today, the idea of swallowing pills made of fecal matter just sounds too repulsive, don't you think? So he never got to publish his data, but other researchers have since been exploring the idea. There was a group of surgeons in Colorado who began using fecal enemas for patients with a disease called pseudomembranous colitis. Pseudomembranous colitis is a disease that's due to the buildup of a single species of bacteria in the colon following the use of antibiotics. This bacteria is called Clostridium difficile. Clostridium difficile, but most people just call it C. diff because it's difficile to pronounce. Haha. <laughs> now, C. diff is a very bad bacteria to have in your colon because it just takes over the colon. Don't forget, this patient has had antibiotics, so the other bacterial species have been knocked back, and C. difficile just takes over. C. diff causes diarrhea, cramps, nausea, 
and is basically the result of a toxin produced by the bacteria that causes inflammation and bleeding of the intestine. C. diff is especially common in people over the age of 65 who are taking antibiotics. So what this Colorado group would do is take a stool sample from a healthy patient, liquefy it, put it in an enema bag, and infuse it back into the rectum of that same patient for as long as possible after the surgery, and they'd repeat it for about a week. The group tried it on a total of 16 cases over the course of 20 years, and in 1981 they reported 94% complete and rapid success in the treatment of pseudomembranous colitis. Other researchers are using this treatment for C. diff infections and reporting 90% success or higher. They're saying that the treatment lasts and it's safe and has no major side effects or newly acquired medical conditions during follow-up, even when performed in vulnerable patients. Then in the 1980s and 1990s, they started using fecal transplantation to try to help patients with other intestinal problems like ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, and inflammatory bowel syndrome. In this century, these fecal transplantation experiments are showing success in treating other diseases like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, and malnutrition. Now there's a recent research paper though that says there's one disease that fecal transplantation does not seem to give consistent results in treating. It's metabolic syndrome. Fecal transplantation just doesn't seem to be helping people with metabolic syndrome. Now, metabolic syndrome is when patients are obese and they experience increased rates of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, insulin resistance, or strokes. And metabolic syndrome is now occurring in about one out of every six Americans. So it would be great if this simple technique of fecal transplantation was actually effective. But it just doesn't appear to be so yet. They're sure doing a lot of research on this topic, though, both with lab animals like mice and rats and in the clinic with patients. It does look like there are specific types of bacteria that live in the guts of people with metabolic disease, but it looks like transplantation of beneficial bacteria into the intestines of these patients just doesn't help in a consistent fashion. One of the problems appear to be keeping the good bacteria alive. Most of them don't live when they're not in the body, so it's difficult to do the transplant. Now researchers are experimenting with cultivating these bacterial strains in anaerobic conditions, which means without oxygen. And they are having better luck with that technique. And fecal microbiome transplantation is still being used effectively to treat diseases like C. diff inflammatory bowel disease and constipation. There are certain microbiomes, bacteria, that might also be associated with diseases like Crohn's disease and allergies and asthma, which is really cool. There was a review article published in the January 22, 2019 issue of Frontiers in Cellular and Infection Microbiology, and this article is written by some researchers in New Zealand, which took into account that each of us has a unique microbiome, and it raises the question of whether or not there might be some people who would serve as better fecal donors than other people. They would be called super donors, and there appears to be some promise in taking this approach. If we could find the right people to serve as super donors, maybe that would be a way of treating difficult problems like metabolic disease. This article recommends abandoning 
the one stool fits all approach, I think they're being tongue in cheek here, the idea that one fecal donor could be used to treat a lot of different diseases. They're saying that maybe we should focus on finding individual donors who harbor the best bacterial populations to help individual patients instead of one stool fits all. So they're saying that maybe there's some super donors out there that need to be identified. And then they also mentioned the possibility of developing pharmaceutical products containing the specific bacterial species and strains that would help the most for specific diseases. And then these patients could just pop a pill containing these bacteria, kind of the way people take probiotic pills now, and it might help treat that disease. So the bottom line here, I guess, and you must be tired of these puns, the bottom line is that fecal transplant studies are still in their infancy, even though they've been used by different cultures for the past 1,700 years. Researchers need to identify better fecal donors. They need to learn how to identify the most favorable bacterial species or strains that can help overcome specific diseases. And they need to learn to isolate and culture these beneficial bacteria better so that they can deliver them to the patient in an efficient manner. And they need to carry out larger research trials. There is naturally some concern about the possibility that communicable diseases or other bad side effects could result from this kind of technique. And so they need to do really good research on that. In addition, there is the problem of the yuck factor for this kind of medical treatment. The idea that another person's intestinal waste could contain something, like living bacteria, that could actually help another person? That's just too weird to be true, but it looks like it might be. Although the concept of a fecal transplant is a little repulsive, it's fascinating that something so simple, albeit gross, could be helpful to so many people. This has been another episode of How'd We Ever Get That? The idea that perhaps our ancestors observed animals in nature consuming feces and decided to try it on themselves to cure disease. Even by itself, it's kind of a wild idea that you yourself might have bacteria in your body that is hurting your health or that maybe you're missing certain types of bacteria that could be helping you. But even more crazy, this idea that you might be able to foster the right kind of bacteria by just getting a donation from another person. But that idea is out there, and now you know a little bit more about it. Thank you. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. <laughs>